You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to Sweden in Focus. We recorded most of this week's episode on Thursday the 28th of September. But later that day, the Prime Minister Ulf Kristersson held a televised address to the nation about the deadly gang killings that have rocked Sweden this month. And we have some analysis of that that we recorded on Friday morning that you'll hear at the end of the episode. Before that, we're going to hear what Sweden's Finance Minister Elisabeth Svantesson has to say about criticism over spending plans for public services like schools and healthcare. We'll also look at what sparked a gigantic mudslide that destroyed a large section of the motorway that runs from Gothenburg to Oslo. We'll talk about Sweden's ongoing NATO application saga in light of recent comments from Turkish President Erdogan. And finally, we'll examine why politicians and employers in northern Sweden say they need 100,000 people to move there for work. I'm your host, Paul Omani, and we're spread far and wide today. I'm in Stockholm with James Savage. We have Richard Orange in Malmö. And later on, we listen to a chat I had with the journalist Paul Connolly, who's based in Kualeftio, which is situated around 1,400 kilometres north of Malmö. All good, everybody, Richard? Will you be celebrating Cinnamon Bonday this coming Wednesday? I, I ate one this morning, actually, in the interest of research for this podcast. So I'll be sending an invoice <laughs> later. I'm a stamis, a regular at a cafe near my flat called Bröd och Vänner, which means bread and friends. And they make the most amazing cinnamon buns. Like they're super juicy and soft and not dry at all. And uh, and um, <laughs> so I had one today and it was, it was you know, as always, absolutely amazing. But um, they told me that they've already got orders to make 2,000 buns for next Wednesday from like offices wow. and workplaces. So I don't know, you know, <laughs> the equivalent of the local in um, in Malmo orders buns for all their employees. So I think take notice of that. And uh, and they also they will sell uh, four hundred in the shop, which is more than ten times. They said they normally sell about thirty in a day. So they'll be Blimey. they'll be so loads of people come in because I I think Swedes love this sort of thing, don't they? They love this sort of special day to do a different activity. And I don't know something about the. I don't know why. It's a mystery, but but, 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 but it, it is a big deal. It does it does it does happen. I'm gonna I'm gonna join in. I think I'll enter into the spirit of things on Wednesday. I shall too. I live opposite a bakery called Baystrands Bogery, which is one of the best bakeries in Central Stockholm. It's just incredible, and so I, sh- I shall be partaking. It will be impossible to resist. Good to have you back, James. You haven't been on the podcast for the past few weeks for various reasons. Are you back in the swing of things after your Tuscany trip? Oh yeah. Well, obviously, it was very nice to lengthen the summer by spending a week of September in Tuscany. And I have to say the local Italy was very useful. Mm. And 
uh, we'd even interviewed the owners of the hotel that I stayed in, which was great fun to sit there in the in the hotel and discover. And that, that was just a coincidence. That was coincidence. I was sitting. I was. <laughs> I was sitting on the terrace eat, eating dinner. Googled the area and found an interview on the local with the owners of the hotel, who I'd met five minutes earlier, who are Americans. So amazing, uh, amazing. So if I might say to anyone listening that if you are a member of the local, you have access to all the locals' editions. And so if you happen to be traveling in France, Italy, Spain, or one of the other countries where we are present, you can um, find lots of good tips and news and information about life in those countries. And Mm. it can be very useful when you're on holiday too. So this week, Prime Minister Ulf Christesson and Finance Minister Elisabeth Svantesson were in Malmö to visit a nursing home and a school and to talk about their budget priorities. Afterwards, they met the press and Richard was there with our regular panellist, Becky. And Becky asked the Finance Minister how she could claim that last week's budget was anything other than hostile to foreigners living in Sweden, given that the government has cut all funding for ethnic organisations and slashed funding for different forms of adult education that facilitate integration, for example, by teaching Swedish to Ukrainian refugees or helping new arrivals in Sweden top up their education. Richard, how did the finance minister respond to that? I think Becky triggered her a bit, which was kind of the idea of the question, because she made this <laughs> unusually impassioned defence of Sweden as a möjlighetenas land or a land of possibilities. And quite fairly, I think she pointed out, you know, for God's sake, you get free Swedish tuition. And if you're a refugee, you even get paid to study. <laughs> she said there's like there's these new job or which are a sort of subsidised job for people who've recently arrived in Sweden to help get them mm. on the labour market. She says education is completely free right up to the top of university level. And she said, you know, I'm extremely confident that anyone with the will to do so can make a success of their life in Sweden. I think, you know, it, it was I, I found it quite interesting, actually, because this government tends to be, you know, it's it's so much about tightening up immigration. It was quite nice to see a minister make the kind of positive case for what Sweden can offer to immigrants. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was quite good. It was, it was also quite funny because um, I was involved in uh, Extinction Rebellion years ago. I've sort of stopped doing it. But I, I just, you know, went to a few meetings. And when I sat there, I looked around and thought, that guy, I recognise him. And that person, <laughs> I recognise him. And there were like, I started, there were literally 10, like a, a good chunk of the audience were activists. And obviously, you know, they they disrupted the whole thing. If you look in the local press, that's what they reported on. But, you know, it was, yeah. it, was, it, was a, it, it was actually really interesting to see what young moderates are like. And also moderates in Skorna, because the Skorna moderates are have often quite critical of the party nationally. So it was, it was, it was, mm. It was really interesting just to get a feel for the situation really in the party. To stay with the budget, in last week's podcast, we mentioned that the single biggest outlay in the budget presented by the government last week was a 10 billion kroner package of additional funding for Sweden's municipalities and regions. And this comes at a time when services like schools and hospitals are struggling badly as a result of inflationary pressures, spiralling costs and what many describe as chronic underfunding. So while 10 billion kroner might sound like a lot, the municipalities and regions had said they actually need at 28 billion kroner to keep things like schools, healthcare and public transport at an acceptable standard. And opposition politicians said the budget risked plunging the welfare sector into a deep crisis. Are they correct in their analysis? Yeah, I I don't think so. (laughs) Probably not. But in this budget, they got 10 billion in general funding, which they can use for whatever they like, and 6 billion in sort of targeted measures although they said that some of that 6 billion was 
old money that had of of targeted measures that had um, expired. So the six billion is not all new, but anyway, it's a significant amount of money, and it's forty percent of the what they call reform utrimer. So it's forty percent of the extra cash they had to splash. And I think partly there is a kind of a budget game between the central government and the regions, kind of every single budget, yeah. where the regions and municipalities are always going to say we need more, and the government's always going to give them as little as they can kind of afford to. And I thought it was interesting that the uh, Regions and Municipalities Chief Economist, Annika Wallenskog, in her blog that came out after the budget, said that it was pretty much what they expected given the budgetary framework. So, right. uh, so I think that's what you should go on. It's pretty much what they kind of expected and kind of hoped mm. for. They would obviously have wanted more, but it's not the catastrophe that they feared, you know. So, okay. and I think she's right. I mean, because I've been worried about cuts to my children's school, which you know in Malmo the schools don't get enough money, and I feel that this, for me personally, this budget makes me a bit less worried because they are getting at least some extra cash. Okay, good. Um, thanks for those insights, Richard. You also wrote an interesting column this week on why the finance minister is so willing to be unpopular and we've got a lot to get through today so we're not going to talk about that but we will include a link to the article in the notes for anyone interested in finding out more. Let's move on now to a dramatic story that dominated headlines in Sweden last weekend, namely a landslide that destroyed a section of the motorway from Gothenburg to Oslo. What can you tell us about this, James? What do we know about the extent of the damage first? Well, the landslide happened on the E6 uh, near Stenungsund, just north of Gothenburg, and that's the, the, the main road between Gothenburg and Oslo, so quite a significant piece of motorway. An entire section of the motorway moved as much as 50 metres. Mm. It happened at about 1.20am last Sunday morning. And that was lucky because it meant that there weren't many people on the road at the time. But it affected an area of motorway around 700 metres long. Mm. Some parts of the motorway were completely destroyed. It also destroyed part of a nearby motorway service station with a Burger King restaurant left completely crushed. We've got a lot of these pictures on the locals, so it's mm. really worth going to have a look to get an impression of the damage if you haven't already because it's very dramatic. There were 10 truck drivers at the rest stop who described being woken by the earth moving. Wow. And now this whole motorway is going to be out of action for a long, long time. We're seeing estimates of well over six months, according to um, according to some sources. And Tra- Trafikverket, which is the government agency that manages roads in Sweden, mm. they're saying many months. So it's it's going to take this 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 huge bit of infrastructure completely out of service, and there's going to be you know, long diversions um, around it. Incredibly, nobody was killed or even seriously injured in the landslide, yeah. and that is pretty pretty extraordinary. Yeah, as you say, lucky that it happened in the middle of the night. Yeah. Um, and do we know anything about the cause? Well, an investigation is underway, but it's become clear that the motorway was built in an area with something called quick clay. So a bit like quicksand. But in, in other words, the earth was very soft yeah. um, under, uh, ar- around the area of the motorway. And indeed, the road had been moving gradually for a while, about 15 centimetres in seven years, according to satellite imagery from the Swedish Space Agency. But added to that, it has been a very rainy summer. And what a lot of the experts are saying is that large parts of Western Sweden are going to be vulnerable to to landslides, more vulnerable to landslides in the future because of climate change and uh, and a more rainy climate in that Mm. part of the world. 
But there's another potential factor in this uh, incident, which is building work at an, in, at an industrial site near the scene. So builders have been blasting rock as part of uh, the building process, and they've been moving earth as well. So it's not entirely clear that this is a factor, but police are looking into whether it could have contributed to the landslide. Okay. So we'll find out more about that later. And Richard, what are experts saying about what Sweden needs to do to protect its infrastructure from the impact of climate change? Well, I think I think the first thing is they need to get back to the vulnerability assessments that they've been making. Mm. You know, the regions and central government have been making over the past 20 years because of, as a result of climate change and make sure that they've uh, factored in a lot of these elements like, like quick clay. I mean, I interviewed Torsten Moritzen, who's a climate professor at Stockholm University a month or so, and he's very sanguine about climate change. He's not at all an alarmist. Mm. And one thing he said, which I found quite interesting, is that the whole geography of Sweden, you know, where the rivers run, where the lakes, you know, where everything is, has been formed by a relatively stable climate that's been for, you know, thousands of years. And when you see rainfall and temperature change as rapidly and dramatically as it is at the moment, the landscape will also change. You know, the the, the way the watercourses run, everything is going to change. Yeah. And there will be things that crop up that no one has anticipated. So the municipalities might have thought, oh, what's the impact of sea level rise? What's the impact yeah. of, of this extra rainfall? But they won't have factored everything in. And he said that that's even more the case when it comes to infrastructure. He says for hundreds of years, you know, basically since the first building was built in Sweden, the houses, the roads, the sewers, the railroads, everything has been built to a design that is appropriate to the amount of rainfall that the country gets. But mm. but it's a different amount of rainfall now. The climate has changed and a lot of those designs won't work anymore. They they won't have enough capacity. And and you know, he was saying that talking to the uh, railroad that, you know, that the earth was washed away underneath it and it derailed a train. I think that was in August. And But he predicted that you would see a lot of these kind of unexpected big infrastructure failures over the next decade or so, because mm. which which people haven't anticipated and 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 just got to get ready for that to happen. And he, he he said it probably won't happen every year that you'll see a big one, but it could be every 10 years or maybe five years. But we've just seen two right. in one year. So, and then in Norway, there's been, you know, that dam that overflowed. So I, I suppose it, what we've got to realise is we're more vulnerable than we thought, even with all of the kind of vulnerability analysis and assessments that have been done. There's so much that we would have missed, that the, the yeah. authorities would have missed. Yeah, so I suppose it's to prepare for that. Okay, yeah. Um, thanks both for filling us in on this dramatic story. And we'll post some articles about the landslide in the show notes featuring, as James mentioned, some images that give you a really good indication of the scale of what happened. Now let's talk about Sweden's bid to join NATO, which we haven't done in a while. Uh, but there were some interesting comments this week from Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan and Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, the leaders of the two countries that have so far failed to ratify Sweden's application. James, can you update us on this? What are the Turkish and Hungarian leaders saying? Well, I think let's start with Erdogan's comments, because I think they're perhaps the most interesting, given that most people agree that Turkey is the key to all of this. And what Turkey said is that if the US delivers on its promise to sell F-16 jets to Turkey, mm. Turkey will deliver on its promise to ratify Sweden's application. So this is significant because it appears to put the question of Sweden's accession pretty much exclusively into American hands. And incidentally, developments in the US might actually help Sweden here. So Bob Menendez, who is chairman, who was chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, 
was a leading opponent of selling jets to Turkey. Mm. And he has just been forced to quit over corruption allegations. So there are a few things here that might just help Sweden's case. But meanwhile, the other obstacle in Sweden's way, that's to say Hungary, has been sounding less positive. So Prime Minister Viktor Orban told Hungarian MPs that he couldn't see any reason to hurry with the Swedish ratification. Mm. But I think the question still remains is what Hungary would do if Turkey finally moved to ratify. I think most experts believe that Hungary won't stick it out for very long on its own. So if Turkey moves, if Turkey gets that ratification through, then I think we can probably expect Hungary to follow suit. I think it's amazing, by the way. Can I just just jump in here? Like only about, I think it was a, a week or so ago, we were reporting Erdogan expressing his absolute outraged that America had tried to link Sweden's NATO bid to these F-16 jets. He goes, I cannot believe that you've tried to connect these two issues. And then, and then, and then like a couple of weeks later, he comes out and makes an absolutely transactional <laughs> connection between them. I mean, it, it, one thing that's been fascinating with this whole NATO process is, is getting to understand Erdogan a bit because he's, I don't know, such a figure, such a, it's hard to explain. Yeah. But also, also, but also understanding, and I suppose that should, that's, that's a caveat in all of this, is that understanding that what he says doesn't necessarily have that much value. We're very used to politicians that if they, we, we know that politicians sometimes lie or, or bend the truth, but for someone who can so flatly contradict what he himself has said a couple of weeks earlier, I think, you know, that's also something we should see any comments he makes in that light mm -hmm. as well. So now he's linking it to the F-16s. If the F-16s get delivered... Can we believe him that, or is he just going to go around, come, turn around and um, come up with some more conditions? Mm. We can't, can't be 100% sure. Okay, great. Um, thanks for that update. And the Turkish parliament reopens next week. So no doubt we'll be hearing more soon on when Sweden can expect to come in from the cold. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Let's go to Norland now, the Swedish name for the nine northernmost provinces that together make up nearly 60% of Sweden's total land area. Aside from its incredible natural beauty, for years Norland was synonymous in a lot of people's minds with depopulation and industrial decay. 
But in recent times, the area has instead become a byword for labour market renewal as the heartland for Sweden's green transition, as represented by cutting edge companies like Northvolt and H2 Green Steel. And we're going to have Paul Connolly on in just a couple of minutes to talk about all this. But I just wanted to turn to you um, first, Richard, in your years as a journalist in Sweden, have you seen a, a big change in Norland and perceptions of Norland? in the rest of the country and what's actually happened up there in terms of like attracting people to work? No, absolutely. Like, as you said, I mean, when I first came to Sweden, the story was all about, oh, you know, lots of Russian women are being sort of, they're trying to get them to move to Norland because all of the women have left to move to southern Sweden and there's yeah. a massive gender imbalance and, oh, how do we stop depopulation in all of these former industrial towns in, in, in the far north of Sweden. So that's absolutely changed. And I think, I mean, I remember when SSAB announced their plans for this hybrid green steel project. I remember thinking that, thinking that is actually hugely significant. And I was kind of very early on a kind of obsessive about that project. And because, mm. because it's a project that if the iron ore and steel industry of northern Sweden becomes based around uh, hydrogen reduced iron ore rather than uh, coal reduced iron ore, it will reduce the emissions from the whole of Europe by... Third, I think it's something like 30 million tonnes or something, which is pretty much what Sweden, the whole of Sweden, everybody in Sweden, everything in Sweden releases in a year. So, so it's, it's, it's the, the, the amount of emissions that will be removed is colossal. And yeah. also the investment that's required is colossal. And it means that industry will no longer need, be based where there's coal or where there's uh, shipping. It will be based where you can get cheap renewable energy. And that, and you know, Sweden, the north of Sweden has a, has huge uh, hydroelectric reserves and also massive potential for wind power. So, if Sweden invests in renewables, there will be a new green industrial revolution in the far north of Sweden, similar to the one that happened at the end of the nineteenth century when uh, they started developing the iron ore reserves in the region. When suddenly. You know that they had a railroad up to Kiruna, and and the, the area just became you know it, the place where fortunes were made in Sweden. And I think that's going to happen again, or it might happen mm. again. If, a lot depends on the extent to which, it, on whether Sweden can build this wind power that's required that to, to have the cheap electricity that you can use to create the hydrogen that you can use to run all these uh, new industrial mm. projects. So it's, 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 it's I, I find it really exciting. It's like kind of the era when the railroads were built or, you know, it's, it's like a, a huge industrial change that's happening right now. And it means that, I don't know, I think they said they need 100,000 people to move to the north of Sweden to build all these things and to, and to run them and to, you know, run the schools and stuff for all the extra people. So it's, it's, it's going to change the whole region in the, in the next 10 years, if it happens, but then it might not happen. That all of these companies could, mm. could, could fail and the investment mm. could not be there and the wind could not get built because, you know, there's a lot of opposition to building the wind power, especially from the um, indigenous Sami people. Mm. I think what you're saying about the Sami is super important. We're seeing that, that, we're seeing that um, more and more discussion around how the development of Norland 
is affecting this army. You, you talk you, you talked about wind power, but also there's there was discussion around the around El El Kwabi's new mine in Kiruna around Kiruna where they were going to try and extract uh, rare earth metals. This was yeah. this this was announced by the government at the beginning of their EU presidency, and you know, you know and that that has raised objections also for, for many in the Sami community. They're also concerned about over tourism in parts of um, in, in, in parts of Norland. I think this this part of the country that uh, for, for decades for centuries always been very sparsely populated and plenty sort of plenty of room for everybody and plenty of room for the Samis to herd their reindeer unimpeded. The, the growing exploitation of Norland is going to cause some um, some very uncomfortable conversations. I think. Thanks both for your perspectives on this. Uh, this is where we part ways for now. And we're going to jump now to my chat with Paul Connolly. And I started by asking him to tell listeners a bit about himself and what brought him to Sweden. Hi, Paul. Thanks for inviting me. I'm the English editor of the Norland newspaper in Vesterbotten, as well as editor of Norland Living, an English language magazine. She left here as the hub for the green transition up here. And we have thousands of English speakers who are trying to help integrate. Yeah. Noran's local news and features in English are just one strand of that effort. As for what I'm doing in Sweden, well, my girlfriend and I moved to Sweden 10 years ago after working too long and too hard for UK national newspapers. Yeah. We wanted to slow down, but that didn't quite happen out as um, within three months, Donna was pregnant with twins. So you've been here for, yeah, quite a long time now, 10 years ago, you said, and yeah. you've written... Well, you've written quite a, a lot of articles for the local during that time. I was reading back through some of them this week. Uh, really interesting. And we we'll link to one of one or two of them in the show notes. Uh, but you wrote a few weeks ago on Nordon about how Kuleftio's population, where you live, is at its highest level in decades. What would you say are the most noticeable changes to life in the Kuleftio area in the years since you moved there? Well, there's just a lot more energy about the place. Um, when we first moved to Sheleftio, the local municipality was really lethargic and lacking in ideas mm. and complacent, really. Their idea of marketing was to send an Englishman to Stockholm in a bus to shout at people from the top deck, telling them to move to Sheleftio. Was that you? <laughs> it might have been more successful. <laughs> I very much doubt it. Um, but in around 2013, um, they hired a a brilliant local woman made good, Helena Renstrom. She became marketing manager and she kind of kick-started the revival, which ultimately led to Northfold building its battery factory here and the construction of the wooden skyscraper the Sara Culture House. And you know, the result was in last year, Time magazine selected Shilefti as one of the world's greatest places. Wow. So yeah, that's they've really they've really come a long way. Yeah, it's fantastic. And we talked a bit about the economy at the start of this episode and the outlook nationally really isn't that great at the moment. But a new report from Nordea Bank this week showed that there are big regional differences and Norland looks to have the best economic prospects in the coming years. And the report highlights the huge significance of the green transition. Just how big is the green industry sector in northern Sweden? Like, Who are the main employers and what kind of jobs are companies recruiting for? Well, Peter Larsson, who I don't know if you know, is the government's northern Sweden czar, said earlier this year that he expects investment of more than a thousand billion kroner, I think is about $90 billion, to be made in the area over the next 20 years. He also estimates that we will need an extra 100,000 people over the same time period. Yeah. 
from the main employers, well, it, it's there's North Bolton to left here, obviously, which already, mm. uh, I think, provides 9% of the town's employment. H2 Green Steel in Burden, Hybrid yeah. in Yervara, and LCAB in Kirina. But the types of jobs on offer across a really broad spectrum. It's the obvious things like truck drivers, but then there's geologists, electricians, and English-speaking primary school teachers. Mm. I was named as one of the top 10 pop jobs in uh, Norland recently. Um, English-speaking teachers are in huge demand up here because we have so many English-speaking people moving here. Yeah, really interesting. And we've seen lots of stories about how municipalities in northern Sweden are desperate for people to fill all these job vacancies they have. But unemployed people in southern Sweden aren't rushing to move up and employers are using every trick in the book to recruit people from the rest of Europe and countries like Brazil and Turkey, for example. But they're finding it a struggle. Why why do you think it's proving so hard to attract people? Well, there have been a couple of high profile recruiting misfires. Um, but the talk of a struggle to recruit people is a little wide of the mark. In Sheleftia municipality sends out 300 newcomer welcome packs a month, of which 150 are to new Northfold staff. Sheleftia now has its highest population for 50 years. The main problem we have here is being able to build houses and apartments fast enough, something which the economic slowdown down south is really badly affected. Yeah. Banks are reluctant to finance new pro- projects. For instance, Norfolk has 400 people waiting for long-term homes and has called for government intervention. And the municipality is frustrated too. It's mm. given planning permission to 500 res- residences over the next two years and its own construction company, Skibo, has loads of projects on the go. But unless other construction companies can build, we're a little stuck. I've heard rumours and said I should be confident the government will do the right thing. I don't think they want this to fail either. Mm. Okay, yeah. So so you say reports of a struggle to recruit people are a bit wider than mark, but I've seen some analysts speculate that parts of northern Sweden, maybe mostly the more remote parts where they have mines and maybe not much else, that they could end up like offshore oil rigs where workers fly in, work their shifts and fly out again. Do you think that's a legitimate concern? Well, unless we can build accommodation faster, that is a danger. Because we find people want to move here. But finding a house or an apartment is just difficult. Mm. That said, there does seem to be huge resolve locally to fix these problems. I'd also like to see the municipalities compulsorily buying empty rural houses as a way of providing more options for families, because a lot of the families want to move to the countryside. They don't want to move to town. Right. I think Boudin municipality has taken some steps on this path. And finally, Paul, if, we, if we've got some people listening to the podcast who are considering a move to northern Sweden, what would you advise them? Well, it's a lovely place to live. Warm summers, colourful autumns, proper winters and really lovely spring. And out in the countryside, 20 to 30 minutes drive from town, you can find good housing at affordable prices. I mean, really affordable prices. Also, I can speak from personal experience. That's a great place to bring up kids. And now with the green transition, there's a chance to be involved in something truly era-defining. Mm. And the clincher for me, for local listeners, is we need English speakers. Because as Peter Larson, the government's Northern Sweden czar, said not long ago, it's only once real, momen- real momentum has kicked in that traditionally less mobile Swedes, and there are a lot of them, will start to move north. So get here first, English speakers. Okay, Paul, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure.
We spoke last week on the podcast about an escalation in gang violence and the situation worsened again this week after three killings in the space of 12 hours and a month being referred to in the press as Black September. Prime Minister Ulf Christensen held a televised address to the nation on Thursday night. We'll link in the notes to the latest stories on this. And meanwhile, we've got James and Richard back on the line now to talk about these developments. Uh, James, can you just summarise what the Prime Minister said? It was quite a political speech in a way. This wasn't the this wasn't the gathering the nation around the campfire kind of speech to the nation. This was a this was this was a speech where Christian was effectively defending what the government was doing to tackle gang crime and where he was also implicitly or even explicitly criticizing previous governments for not doing enough. But the, the main kind of news angle from his speech was that he was going to meet, he said he was going to meet on Friday with the National Chief of Police and the Commander-in-Chief of the Swedish Armed Forces, Mikkel Bedien, to see how the armed forces, he said, could help the police fight the gangs. Mm. That was the main takeaway. We're going to call in the military. Now, obviously, what he didn't say is exactly what the military is going to do. And that will be a matter for his discussion today with um, with Mikkel Bedien and the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the chief of police. But he said, we're going to hunt down the gangs. We are going to defeat the gangs. He, it felt a little bit like he was on the defensive, that he was um, that, that, that he was having to answer for the fact that um, gang crime is still getting worse, despite his government, which had made this a priority to defeat the gangs, being in power now for, for around a year. But he started his speech by detailing some of the killings over the past few days, not least the 25-year-old woman near Uppsala who was killed by an explosion that was apparently targeted at one of her neighbours um, as she was sleeping. And he said that serious organised crime had risen over the past past decade due to naivety. He said an irresponsible immigration policy and failed integration has led us here. Um, So he said that the Swedish legislation as it is now was not designed for gang wars or for child soldiers, as he called them. Mm. But he said, we are changing that now. Yeah. Um, Richard, this idea that James mentioned of the military helping in the fight against gang violence, as James said, you know, there's going to be a meeting on this later today. Do we know anything about that, what that would involve yet? It's it's very unclear, but Justice Minister Gunnar Strömer was on Swedish television on um, Thursday night saying that it might involve helicopters or general expertise. He said general expertise. They've also spoken about giving protection. So hood, and that's very vague. They're not saying exactly what would be protected. I mean, one big limitation is that there is a directive from 2002, I think, which bans the armed forces from being used for civil purposes in situations where there's a risk that they might be dragged into um, violent acts against any individuals. That law might have to be changed. And that's, that's one of the things Three years ago, the chief of police submitted kind of a, a, a request to the government which recommended changing this law. And that wasn't because of gang crime, actually. That was more because they were worried about hybrid warfare, where a foreign power would use proxies on Swedish soil to try and destabilize the situation, which is you know something Russia's done in Ukraine. So the, the reason that they wanted the military to be able to do that is they didn't want to have their hands held in a hybrid war situation. But but the limit on on violence, it means that what, say, the Sweden Democrats have in mind, which would be soldiers patrolling Rinkeby or mm. something, that's not possible at, pre- at present. 
so the, the army would be more backing up the police so that more police officers could be deplo- deployed in those kind of roles. And, and on Wednesday, Mich- before this was announced, Mikhail Boudin gave an interview to Dorgan's New Hetter where he said that, you know, we have a great intelligence operation. So, you know, military intelligence could play a mm-hmm. big role. And he said that also, you know, we have an enormous bureaucratic organization which could take a lot of tasks away from the police so that more officers could be deployed to the front line. So it's more sort of taking jobs away from the police so that more police can be on the streets. And they also said that we also have limited resources. So every police officer, every army officer that does something for the police is doing something less for Sweden's defence. So it's always mm. going to be a matter of priorities. Okay, yeah. And uh, was there anything else that really stuck out for either of you in the address? Yeah, I think that one of the things that really stuck out for me was the fact that um, Ulf Kutcherson again and again went back to the issue of uh, immigration and uh, linked the, I mean, this isn't the first time he's done it, but it was it was very explicit here. And it, and it was a thread that ran throughout his, his speech that he was linking the problems with gang criminality back to what he, what he described as, 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 as Sweden's naive um, immigration policy over many, many years. So it was very much uh, using this to implicitly kick both the Sweden, the social democrats, his predecessors, but also perhaps implicitly his, um, his, his predecessor as um, moderate party leader and previous prime minister Frederick Reinfeldt. So he was mm. he, he was he was basically kicking kick, kicking his, his predecessors as a way I think of deflecting blame from him for what's going on in Sweden right now. Well, one thing I found very interesting, which I I, I kind of obsessively look at when it comes to criticism, is his kind of body language and presentation. And a lot of the coverage in I mean, all of the coverage actually that I've seen in the Swedish press is like that he was not prime ministerial. So. I think he was trying on this role, and, and it, I think it's difficult for him for some reason to strike the right tone. It's not his. It's not his natural element. You th- uh, I mean, I, I'm not saying that being prime minister is not his natural element, but 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 sound, but 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 doing this kind of heavy um, sort of prime ministerial speech is perhaps not his his natural way of talking. His natural way of talking is to be professorial, reasoning on the one hand, on the other hand, and sounding terribly, terribly reasonable. But laying down the law in this way is perhaps therefore not the kind of um, rhetoric that comes naturally to him. How do you expect this gang situation to develop for Sweden and for the government? I think it's a very worrying situation for Sweden and for the government. I mean, the, the, the level of violence we've seen over the last few days has been, if not unprecedented, um, it's been extremely high and higher than the uh, higher death toll over the last uh, over the last month than any month for the last four years. And you know, even just the last few days uh, this week have been have, have seen an extreme level of violence with three people killed in uh, the space of 12 hours um, yeah. uh, at one point this week. So uh, if this continues, and you know there, there are plenty of indications that it might, then the government is going to be in a very, very difficult situation very quickly. So it needs to show that it's taking this seriously and that, that it's got ideas about how to act. And I think that's what Chris Tishman was trying to show. That's all for this week. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in and thanks to to this week's panellists, the locals James Savage and Richard Orange and to our guest Paul Connolly, the editor of the English section of the Noran newspaper. Our sound engineer, as always, is the excellent Rhys Edwards. I'm Paul O'Mahony and we'll be back next week with another episode of Sweden in Focus. Until then, take care.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.